Previously on Solve the World. You know what happens next. The blue doesn't save Rune Abdo, doesn't call her name. Before Marshall even knows what's happening, Rune is placed on a train, out of Anmo, condemned. From a high precipice overlooking the auditorium, Constable catches Marshall's gaze. The constable smiles and waves one finger back and forth. Marshall was found out. His love of Rune had condemned her. And now he had Anmo's dictator to suffer. Solve the World, a fictional adventure told in 100 episodes. Next week on Hallmark Channel, the incredible new melodrama that's sweeping the nation. Episode 77, In the Garden of Gethsemane. Time didn't have much meaning on the submarine. For the crew of the Deep Sea Diver, traveling 20,000 leagues under the sea meant there was no daytime, no night. Just perpetual, electronic glow. Jennifer Dash and the recovering Atticus further passed the time, after Atticus's gooey shoebox catharsis, by talking, learning about each other. One conversation is worth a look back. All right, Atticus said. Favorite movie. Go. Um, Jen mused. That's hard. I really like documentaries. I don't know, they all kind of meld together. I don't really remember them until something sparks, you know? It's hard to just think about them as movies. They're just like... Like these things that happen. When something similar happens or I need to learn a lesson or something like that, then I remember. Oh yeah, I watched that thing where the dogs learn to give up. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, right now. What documentary pops into your mind? The dog one? No, not really. I was just remembering a time I remembered the dog one. Whoa, that's meta. Remembering and remembering? Is remembering even a word when you use it like that? Of course it is. I'm remembering you the first time we met. See? Yeah, but that's not the way you used it. You used it like a thing, like remembering is a thing. A noun. Sure it is. It's a word. Anyway, what documentary are you remembering now? <sighs> okay. Um, the one that comes to mind. Gosh, I can't remember the name. Something about hell? The Storm of Hell? The Storm Hell Chronicles? Something like that. Never heard of it. Yeah, I don't know if it was a big deal film. I was pretty little when I watched it. I just remember the whole thing was narrated by this eccentric scientist. He was like your prototypical, wacky, kind of out of touch type of guy, but really energetic. And the whole film is about insects. The guy's point, I think, again, I was really little and I probably missed like the actual point of the film. But uh, anyway, the scientist just kept on going on and on about how the next stage of evolution will see insects become the dominant species on Earth. Really? Atticus said with a skeptical smile. Yeah, so the whole film was like 
stating fact after fact about why insects are inclined towards world domination. It was really far out there, so he's just a whack job. No, see, I think I could totally be getting this wrong, but my little eight-year-old brain or whatever thought that the movie at first is trying to make fun of this guy a little bit. Like, look, get a load of this kook. But then, you know, by the end of the film, you start realizing that he's actually making some good points. Such as... Well, see, it'd probably be really good to rewatch it now after everything that's happened. I think there was even this line about the probability that we humans go extinct due to nuclear holocaust. Eh, he's right on the money there. Yeah, and like how bombs are really bad for all mammals, not just humans. It doesn't just kill us. You know, it's like, goodbye cougars, goodbye elephants. But insects, a lot of them live underground or are too small to be affected by radiation. So, essentially, our doom means their heyday. Whoa. Yeah, <laughs> and the craziest part... So, just take ants, for instance. Okay, Atticus seemed really into this. So, you might not be surprised to hear that there are more ants in the world than humans. Seems a fair statement. Yeah, but listen to how much. I remember this part really well for some reason. If you weighed all the ants on Earth, and weighed all the humans on Earth... The ants would weigh way more. Like, just as a mass, ants have conquered the earth. They're in first place. Huh. Yeah, and that's just ants. I think the documentary said something like there's a billion insects for every one human living today. That's crazy. Yeah, so, okay. What's your favorite movie? Ah, yeah. Cool Runnings. What's that one? The Jamaican Bobsled Team one. I love it because it's one of those classic Disney sports films. It's rated G or PG or something like that. And yet, the team loses in the end. That's powerful. You like tragedies? Jen asked. Not necessarily. I just like the idea of winning despite losing. Those guys came home winners. But, hold on a sec. Your whole remembering a memory of a movie shtick is fascinating. I'm trying to think. I guess, did you ever see The Blair Witch Project? Jen shakes her head now. It's one of those things. If you watch any one scene of the movie, you're like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Really? Yeah, the camera's low quality, it's always out of focus. Nine-tenths of the thing is just these college kids running around in the woods crying. So the other tenth is really good? No, it's not even that. It's just... Okay, so, spoiler alert. That's fine, I don't like scary movies anymore, Jen said. So... The movie's supposed to be a documentary. It's not, but you know, that's the trick of the film or whatever. These kids go into the woods in Maine or somewhere like that? Pennsylvania? The Northeast. Somewhere. Supposedly, there's a witch in the woods. So the whole premise of the movie is these guys going into the woods trying to catch the witch on camera. They get lost. Spooky things start happening. Like, their tent starts shaking violently in the middle of the night. Piles of rocks are left outside their sleeping area. Even talking about it right now, it sounds scarier than it really is. And on top of it, it's kind of boring. Um, eventually one of the three of the main characters goes missing. Uh, and if I'm remembering correctly, they find a couple of his teeth pulled out and left for them to find or something like that just outside of their tent. That sounds terrifying. But it's not. It, it's really not. But then, the very last scene... They find this broken-down house in the middle of the woods. They think they hear their lost friend screaming from inside the house, so they go in it. 
The camera's held by the two characters, so it's all first person, like it's you that's running through this abandoned building in the middle of the night. I'm getting goosebumps. Anyway, at the very end, the last shot, you see one of the characters, and he's in the basement of the house. But he's standing in the corner of this dark, creepy room, his face down. The main girl screams, the camera falls to the floor, movie over. Okay, I'm not sure I get it. Yeah, so that's the thing. On its own, if I pulled up that last scene on YouTube, it's not scary at all. But at the beginning of the movie, the characters are interviewing locals about the myth of the Blair Witch. One of the people they interview talk about how there was the serial killer killed little kids, and he did so under the influence or spell or whatever of the Blair Witch. Thing was, he couldn't stand to be watched by these little kids. He hated when their eyes were on him. So he'd make one stand in the corner with its eyes down, its face down, while he killed the other one. That's horrible. Yeah, okay, but that's the creepy part, right? This guy in the last shot, he's not the missing friend. He's one of the two characters that's just been searching the house. He's a big burly college guy, not a little kid. And he knows the story about the serial killer. So why would he stand in the corner like that? He'd have to know it's a death sentence. The only answer is, whatever he saw down there, the witch herself or or whatever, it had to be so horrible that it made him do it. When you're watching the movie and your brain suddenly figures that out, what's actually happening that you're not seeing, it's incredible and terrifying. So that's your favorite movie? I don't know, probably not. It's probably Cool Runnings. But it does this thing that most movies don't do, or can't do, which is, Jen said leadingly, the last shot explains the whole. It makes everything else scary. Honestly, I wasn't into the movie until the end. I kind of thought it was dumb, but then the last shot made everything scary. One moment explained everything. Marshall saw the walls from miles off. From afar on the train, he couldn't tell what substance the walls were made out of. They almost looked like skinny, snow-drenched mountains. That couldn't be right. A few more minutes and all would be answered. Marshall was a mess. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't have a game plan. He'd become a product of id, the first part of Sigmund Freud's psychoanalytical brain drain. The id was a function entirely of chaos and instinct. According to Freud, the id is what we're born with. Natural instincts, inclinations, and base desires. Sometime later, the ego comes along and weighs the id's urges against reality. The ego is that part of your mind that says, Don't grab that cookie. It'll taste good, but it won't help us reach our goal of losing 10 pounds before prom so that we can fit into that bodacious dress of ours. The last part of the triptych, the superego, comes yet later. That's the part bestowed upon you by parents or other authority figures. That's the part of our brain that aspires towards perfection. Marshall Winston, on his long train ride to the Great White North, had walked through Freud's terms precisely backwards. His superego pressure, his authority figure, Mama, Fodderbeck, and the Druidry at large, had fallen to the wayside. Marshall no longer trusted their voices. Marshall was hell-bent to play for his own team now. 
No more sacrifices for the good of the tribe. He didn't understand the tribe, didn't get what's going on with that thing in the depths that burned him, didn't want all that hassle. And the childlike version of himself, the accusing past, the part of him that pointed at Marshall in the marble room, he could never live up to that thing, that command, even if he tried. The message was too oblique. Why have you forsaken me? Forsaken whom? For what? For when? None of it made sense. If you can't win the game, why bother to play at all? The same went for his ego. He tried to do the right thing, tried to make way for little Rune Abdo, tried to make her the center of his own salvation. What good did that do him? He had failed miserably. Why had Marshall forsaken Rune? He didn't mean to, it just happened. The ego gone, dust in the wind, just like the superego, only it remained to rule the world. This was the construct that told Marshall to kill the constable. A considerate hero would have valued the constable's continued existence. The constable had intel. He had more to say. Marshall didn't care. The long-term benefits of keeping the child napper alive mattered not. He was the direct cause of Rune Abdo's downfall. Ergo, he must go. Truth be told, Marshall enjoyed it. The ending of his life was satisfying. When he slayed Sir Isaac, the world was alight with madness. There wasn't time to sit and pontificate on the sport of killing. Now, there was. Now, Marshall realized he had a taste for blood. Whatever lay ahead, beyond those northern walls, Marshall felt deep within a sense of satisfaction that again, soon, he would have cause to draw blood in the worst way. Minutes later, the wall was clear to behold. And what a wall it was. Not made of skinny mountains, not made of wood, not made of marble or steel or tin or any other man-crafted substance. No, this was something out of a fairy tale. Marshall's train was a one-way ticket out of reality and into the Disney world of Frozen. For what stood towering ages high in front of him was a barricade unbreakable, undeniable, a fortress of ice. Was the train going to bore headlong into the wall of ice? Sure, the autopilot train seemed to be slowing, but not fast enough. Whatever lay beyond those icicle shelves was about to get a rude awakening. Should Marshal Bolt hop off the runaway train? Now, something like a drawbridge was opening up. My God, they're inviting me in, Marshall thought. It turned out not just to be something like a drawbridge. Rather, it was a drawbridge. An ice drawbridge. This engineering feat alone was something beyond Marshall's comprehension. Who did this? Who could have constructed this megalopolis in the middle of an Arctic tundra at the dark height of winter? As the train snuck through the icy gates, it continued to slow. But none of that mattered. What mattered, what the whole world now revolved around, was what in fact lay beyond the white translucent walls. A garden. More than a garden, a verifiable wilderness. 
There were streams hopping to and fro, lapping whimsically around over rocks and small clefts. There were hills covered in green grass. In the distance, a cornfield shaking in the wind. And that wind! It wasn't the arctic blast that chilled the marrow of your bones. It was warm. The first flush of summer warm. Trees. Big ones. Large oak trees, their branches sprawling, perfect for building a treehouse. Kicking out any girl starting a nine-year-old pirate club. Don't oak trees take 50 years to mature? How could this be here? From the train, Marshall looked and tried to catch with his eye the edge of this kingdom. He wasn't sure if he could. The walled world extended for miles. Finally, fully immersed in this mesmerizing dream, Marshall hopped off the stalled locomotive. Was this heaven? Just beside the train tracks, an orange tree, seductively offering a perfectly ripe orange to him with the tendrils of a delicate branch. It nearly fell into his hands as he plucked it. He had to know. Was this a mirage? Some sort of trick of the light? Was Marshall dying in this, his brain's last recourse? An autoimmune dimension to make the master's last thoughts pleasant? Tasting the orange would help standardize this reality. As he peeled the orange, an intense aroma of citrus wafted up Marshall's nose. Flecks of orange peel juice spiraled up his hand as he deflowered the fruit. It peeled so pleasantly as if this orange had been made for, waiting, longing, hoping for the moment it was chosen for final consumption. Not only did it peel pleasantly, but it split into bite-sized slivers with almost no effort. The taste out of this world. Marshall Winston was eating the most sumptuous meal of his life, a simple orange, amidst an unparalleled oasis of life on a continent of blood and ice. A funny reflex occurs in instances like this, at a time when it would make perfect sense to enjoy the orange, to make sure you savor every droplet of juice, Marshall downed the fruit. He hadn't realized it. Marshall Winston was hungry, suffering from hunger in fact. He'd been too busy starting an insurrection, murdering, surging out of Anmo to ever give a second's notice to his body's cries. This orange was not just filling him up, it was restoring him. Beyond being a mere treat, this was life in fruit-shaped form. Having indulged in the fruit of the vine, Marshall's eyes at last started to see what shouldn't be. Once he began seeing, he couldn't believe he missed it from the start. How could he not be aware? Marshall Winston was anything but alone in this garden behind the ice walls. This place didn't spring out of nothing just for him. No. It was filled with creatures. Monsters. All of them, to one extent or another, were humanoid, had human attributes of some vague recollection. There was a hyena man, walking bent upright on two paws, a water buffalo with a human mouth and tongue, a lioness lady, resting on her belly beside a stream. Over there, a tree, with at least six billy goat children neighing and tiptoeing on the bitter end of the tree's branches, gobbling up leaves. On a hill in the distance, a bear woman sat on her hind legs, apparently cavorting with an elephant man. 
And not just human half-breeds. There were others, non-Euclidean shapes. A man that looked like he was the offspring of a woman and a mountain, standing at least 15, 16 feet tall. Another looked like a mixture of a T-Rex, a pigeon, and an elderly person, hunched over but small, maybe four feet high. All the fancies of your imagination, here, on display, happy as well, very happy, or at least peaceful. Marshall had tripped over into Narnia somehow. This had been one hell of a train ride, or rather, a train ride out of hell and flush smack dab in the middle of Nirvana. The weight of seeing quite unseeable things knocked Marshall onto his knees and then onto his butt. He sat, mouth agape, staring incomprehensibly at the sights. There's a certain mechanism that takes its course when our brains are presented with data that our mind has no paradigm for. Marshall had no reason to think he was entering into a large garden of monsters, so at first, his brain processed what it could process, namely, the orange tree, the streams. Furthermore, Marshall needed to eat, so his brain provided a visual context that illuminated all the possible known eateries, the orange tree being the finest example of occipital narrowness. Certain urban legends have continued to endure, expressing a conventional wisdom that Marshall could heretofore wholeheartedly confirm. Supposedly, when some of the first pilgrims landed on North American shores, the locals, having never seen boats such as the Europeans traveled in, simply couldn't process the sight. The Native Americans looked out at the Atlantic coast, a coast with two or three large Mayflower-style boats in view, and saw for themselves precisely nothing. Their brains refused to take in these maiden voyagers. The brain couldn't handle the data. Similar studies have occurred for people that receive surgeries to regain their sight after a lifetime of blindness. For us sightseers, we think that process from darkness into light must be wonderful. But in all truth, it's a process not unlike birth. In a word, overwhelming. Marshall right now was in the process of being born again. Like a baby's first cry... Here, in this garden of paradise, one of the beastly things came to Marshall. It was a woman, dressed only in a string of diamonds and rubies. She walked his way provocatively, every curve of her slender, voluptuous body on display. From the neck down, she was proportionally perfect, the incarnation of the perfect woman. Her face, though, was not that of a woman at all. She was a jackal pointy nose, furry ears. A jackal from jaw to the top tuft of fur on top her head. Marshall wasn't sure she was real. He said nothing. She said everything. Human, I have a gift for you. She handed him a card, like a poker card. Same feel, same proportions. But there was no ace or jack of clubs or two or three of any number on the card. It remained blank. Marshall flipped it over in his hand. The backside was an intricate inkblot of converging shapes and lines. Nothing overly special. Marshall slipped it into his pocket. You are weak, but you can travel where we cannot. I am not like the rest. I want things to continue as always. Once I was a queen. I had a kingdom. No door will give me keys to that kingdom again. I want what you want. She was speaking quietly now, her eyes sweeping the horizon. This was a secret, a super-secret secret. 
He will help us if you call upon him. Use it to get to him, to call him. Marshall, bewildered, finally spoke, a frog caught in his throat. Who? The enemy of the old man. She turned seductively, revealing her stunning backside. Her hips swayed to and fro as she walked away. Who knows how long Marshall sat there, trying to make sense of these things in plain sight. Trying to make real, somehow, the memory he just experienced. However long it did take, the revelation that all this was real led to one more revelation of beholding. First, before vision, came the sound of children laughing. Anmo's rejected orphans, all of them, were here. Beast and child played together. This wonderland was heaven. Rune! Rune! Marshall bolted up. She must be alive. More alive here, surely, than ever she was in Anmo's underground bunkers. Marshall began to run, like a madman, running, calling out. He was Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning, or George Bailey on Christmas Eve. Rune! Rune! He called out, ignoring myriad beasts and malformations. Rune! Rune! What began as hopeful was turning bitter. Rune! Where was she? All this travel, all this spectacle, all these god creatures, and yet the world remained a wicked and sick place. For where was Rune? The embodiment of innocence and virtue. Where was Rune? Rune! Marshall cried out losing his balance and falling on the side of a steep but shallow hill. Hi, Marshall. Rune said. She smiled down at him. She sat on the limb of a tree ten paces behind Marshall. Her grin. Her face. She was the same. She hadn't changed. They hadn't twisted her into some monster. She was safe. She was okay. Rune was Rune. Innocence had kept its form. <laughs> Rune! 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 <laughs> Marshall's head in his hands, crying, sobbing. The world was too much. Marshall, get up. Miles Fa channeled his voice. Marshall had no choice. He was going to listen. He was going to be obedient. Everything's gone wrong. How? Marshall responded. They're a step ahead of me. I... I didn't see it. I don't know why. Why I didn't. You have to get her out of here. You have to save her, if no one else. Rune? Miles, still nursing his two missing digits, stared down at Marshall, somewhere between madness and exhaustion. You have to get Scout further out of here. Do you think we all get a last shot? Jen asked Atticus that day back on the submarine. What do you mean? Atticus replied. I mean, some moment, maybe not the last moment, but a chance everyone gets for everything to make sense. You want to know if our lives have meaning? 
Not exactly. I'm more wondering if there'll be a moment in our lives that explains who we are entirely, or maybe tells our whole story. Or, or like the Blair Witch Project, a moment that suddenly makes everything before it make sense. Hmm. That sounds like predestination to me. How's that? Jen asked. Well, in order for there to be one big splashy moment, your life would pretty much always have to be leading up to that moment, right? I guess. Yeah, so if life is random and it's just full of all these sudden events, cause and effect, survival of the fittest endgames, then nothing could stand for the whole, right? Do you believe in predestination? I don't know. I, I guess I kind of do. You know, I was raised a Christian. Yeah. So, you know, as a Christian, it's all about Jesus. And so the last shot thing definitely works for him, right? If he doesn't die and resurrect, then the whole thing doesn't make any sense. So, Christians believe everything is fixed. God's already written everyone's story? Well, okay, so that's the point I wanted to make. So, the night Jesus is arrested, he's in this garden praying. To God? Yeah. Isn't that kind of weird? Because isn't he supposed to be God? Yeah, it's a little weird, but go with me for a sec. Okay, Jen says obediently. There, in the middle of the night, Jesus is sweating, crying. Some say he was even sweating blood. He was so nervous and anxiety-ridden. Because he knows what's coming? Yeah. And he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to go through with it. He's on his knees, begging God, screaming out to him, If there's any other way, God, let me choose that path. The exact quote is, I think, in English, of course, Let this cup pass over me. He's saying, like, I don't want to drink this cup you've prepared for me. I don't want to die. I know the plan. I know what the storyline is supposed to be. I know the end. Yet still, I'm asking you, please, let this cup pass over me. Jesus wanted out. So, I think, even if there is this last shot for each of us, even if everything suddenly is set before us and it all makes sense, we might not like what we see. As Atticus said this, his thoughts returned to the glass house, and how everything he believed in fell like a house of cards in that room of windows. Not all stories end well. Marshal Winston, under the soothsaying control of Miles Fong, left the garden oasis the way he came. Once he got the train fired up, it reversed a little ways, then slid into another track, catapulting itself straight back towards Anmo. Along for the journey, Marshall held Scout further and Rune Abdo close. needing to stay with his orchestrated Old One's Rebellion, watched as the train burned into the dark sky distance. He'd gotten Scout separated from these doomed kids. Maybe someday Jen would thank him.
Hey Everybody Solve the World is produced by myself, Dante Stack. All the sound effects and music we use for this program are under Creative Commons licenses and can be found on our show notes page at DanteStack.com. I'd like to thank freesound.org and freemusicarchive.org for that material. Hey guys, if you like the program, please help me sustain it by writing a review on iTunes, sharing this program with a friend, or donating on our donations page at DanteStack.com. Thanks. See you next week.